desperate, you know, at the time I was 17, 18, unemployed, you know, and I was desperate to, you know, to get a break. And I knew that if I did get a try, I would, you know, I would grab the chance. I think it was always going to be boxing. I mean, I stepped into the gym as a 10 or 11 year old. Boxing just took hold of my heart straight away. I love everything about the sport of boxing. Hello, I'm Marie Crow, and this is We Become Heroes, the RTE sport podcast that explores how elite athletes and sports people reach the top of their game and the lessons that they learned along the way. My guest today is 12-time champion jockey Ruby Walsh. Ruby, you're very welcome. Thanks, Marie. I thought this was your podcast. I didn't realise there was another sidekick you had out of RTE, another little earner there for you. Wow. I thought this was all your this was all your own making. I didn't realise you kind of shafted at myself and done it, and done it with after this one on your own. Surprise! Um, <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's something new. It's something different. So um, yeah, I'm leaving you guys now for dead and making it on my own. Yeah. In the big bad world of just, podcasting. Yeah, just use this and then bend this when you have got what you wanted to get. Oh uh, yeah, it's really know where we stand anyway. Recruited you and sucked you in to be a guest as well. I mean, it's genius, really. Yeah, <laughs> made me feel guilty, but I wouldn't do it. Never. It was just you know, you really have mastered the art. Well, you're here now, so um, you're stuck with me and you're going to have to answer my very uh, insightful and important questions. Um, so I'm going to start, um, Ruby, with just the fact that you're out of being a jockey now for coming up to a couple of years, really. Um, how have you found retirement? I've loved it. Um, it's been very busy, don't get me wrong, but I think when you live um, the life of a professional athlete your entire adult life, there's no way you could there's no way I was going to be able to stop and not do anything. Um, definitely wasn't going to suit me. So I then deliberately kept myself busy and took, I suppose, every opportunity that came my, came my way when I did retire. And um, yeah, still trying to figure out uh, exactly where I'm going. Um, have a direction, but um, there's probably a lot of arrows pointing whatever direction I should be going. But uh, I, I've enjoyed it. I must say I had enough of enough of uh, the pressure enough of the anticipation uh, the worry the, and that's the feeling that comes with pressure it's the anticipation it's not the actual I never felt the pressure of physically riding a horse it was the pressure in the build up the weeks before the decisions um, planning it all out in your head I had just done that for long enough and um, I was standing in Cheltenham a couple of weeks ago and looking at Rachel Blackmore and Paul Townend and thinking I'm glad I don't have that feeling they have in their stomachs right now really and like obviously that's the tough part of it but there's so many highs as well do you, do you miss that the, the winning uh you'll always miss winning of course you will but that's only two percent of the job so yeah I miss crossing the line in front and turning to the crowd at somewhere like Cheltenham or the Dublin Racing Festival or the English Grand National or even Punchestown Galway those big meetings of course yeah, and being clapped back into the parade ring. But that's about 2% of being a jockey or being any sports person is, is crossing the line or, or winning a match. It's all the effort that goes with it. And I had had my lifetime of um, that commitment. So I was looking forward to something else and I'm enjoying what I'm doing. So what about fitness? Are you staying fit, keeping fit? Do you feel fit? I'm not a patch on what I was. Um, nowhere near it. I still ride out three, four mornings a week. Um, still ride the same horses I would always have ridden, not to be the more difficult ones, but um, no, I'm not anywhere near as fit as I was. I was riding work last week at um, 
this race course on for a horse from my dad and Katie was riding um and he's hecking out that runs in the Grand National and I was riding the other horse and I was glad to pull up um, after riding one bit of work after two miles. Um no, I I had gotten to a stage where I was so fit that riding horses was, was second nature and whilst the art or the skill of riding a horse is still second nature, the actual fitness and muscle tone. Um, no, I've lost a considerable amount to that over the last two years. Does it bother you? Does it bother me? Uh, no, I'm not much heavier than I was when I retired. I was, that's a lie. I was nine stone 10 the day I retired. I'm now sort of a 10 stone seven, uh, 10, eight maybe. Um, does it bother me? No, I, I could see myself trying to get some bit more aerobically fit again. No doubt about that. But um, I ride out for that reason. I ride out to try and stop all the injuries I've had coming against me every day of the week. Um, and funny, the only operation I ever had for an injury, I always, the surgeons I had or the doctors I used traditionally, uh, was one man in particular, Bill Quinlan, uh, in the early part of my career. And he was never keen to operate on anything. He always, like he left my leg to heal itself, my hip. He never went, wanted to operate on me. But in the latter stages of my career, I was rushing, I brought my wrist in, on my own, um in entry of a horse called Blood Cateel in early April and I wanted to ride three weeks later in Punchestown. So I had it operated on bar, screws, uh, got it sorted, rode in Punchestown and that's the only thing that gives me any aggro right now. I've only noticed it the last couple of days one of the bolts must have moved in or something. Um, it's a bit sore on my right wrist but other than that um, everything else that healed naturally isn't sore bar the one bit of metal I have. That's interesting. And I'd say people who will be listening and watching this will probably be considering that when they have injuries as well in the future. So Ruby, what about your diet? I know you were completely obsessed before, obviously, when you were a jockey, you had to be, to have you relaxed a little bit now? I suppose I have. Um, probably drink more than I drank when I was riding. Um, but have I completely relaxed? No, I still... I had a habit when I was riding of eating twice a day, um, having lunch and having dinner, sort of in a six-hour period, and I still do that. Maybe that's just ingrained in me. I, I don't know, um, but I still like to eat twice a day, six hours, six, seven hours apart, and and that's my fill for the day, and that's how I maintained my weight when I was riding, as well as the schedule and all the exercise and riding you were doing, which was your physical physical work, um, as well as whatever extra work I was doing in sanctuary, but. Um, no, I still eat the same way as I ate. And I'm not saying that's the healthiest diet for everybody in the world, but it's one that worked for me. And um, I will stick to what I know for myself. How would you describe your relationship with food? I love food. Um, I always liked food. I love going for dinner. Um, a night out for me is, is going to a restaurant with Gillian and having a bottle of wine and good food. I, I love food. Um, I'm not a great cook. I can make dinner um, or <laughs> probably reheat dinner would that be the right way of putting it um, but I'm not a great cook but I do uh, yeah I'm not afraid of food I, I like food um, it's just Don't you can only eat so you, you can just only eat so much of it though and yeah. I think we're all guilty of, of a lot of people are guilty of overeating yeah Definitely. So the last couple of months have been pretty tough for the racing industry with all the fallout from Gordon Elliott. And then Rachel probably put a lot of positivity on it at Cheltenham with her performances. Do you think that you're kind of back on track or maybe even moving in the right direction, trying to 
to fix the image of racing? Yeah, look, um, I suppose every, how are you going to describe that? Every poor uh, event has a consequence on whatever sport it is. Um, but I would think, yeah, look, you move on and you try to show your sport for its strengths rather than uh, the weaknesses that it has. I mean, I can't imagine anybody in a GAA were delighted when they woke up on the 1st of April to see the Dublin football team splashed all over the papers training when we were in a level 5 lockdown. So, you know, every sport will have some event along the way that will tarnish its reputation. And all everybody else can do is try and rebuild it and show their sport for what it really is. Um, but that's possibly, uh, possibly relevant to every walk of life. I mean, you will get brilliant school teachers yeah, one school teacher will drag them down. Um, the same with priests, doctors, whatever way walk of life it is. Unfortunately, the society we live in, people are looking for news and people love bad news stories. And that's what they seem to thrive on. And um, look, that's what happened within racing and that's what's probably happening within the GAA at present. Wow. Bad news stories are the ones probably that sell newspapers more than good news ones and they're the ones that take the That's why people buy them. Newspapers print them, but people want to buy that, to read that. And that's obviously a mindset that we have. Um, We're not as uh, great to read uh, good news stories about people. Um, I don't know why it is. I don't know what it is about the human 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 subconsciousness, but that's what we seem to want to, that's what we want to see and read. It makes us feel a little bit better about ourselves knowing that there's other people down or going through something. That, uh, other, that everyone's human. Yeah, that's because that's exactly. what we all are. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to get into the, the set questions now, Ruby. What is your What are your earliest memories of sport? What is your earliest memory of sport? It's horse racing. My earliest memory of sport is Cheltenham in 1986. Um, I can remember Barney Burnett, a horse my dad trained in 85, winning at Leprostown on St. Patrick's Day and winning at Punchestown when he won the BMW Novice Hurdle. He won the Findus in Leprostown. That would have been 84, so I can remember that as well. But it's horse racing is my early memory of sport. Um, I can remember Gold Cup Day 86, my dad winning the Fox Hunters and Attitude Adjuster. Everybody else will remember Don Nunn winning the Gold Cup. I only remember the Fox Hunters. I was sitting at home in our house in Kill. My grandmother was uh, quite ill at the time. She had cancer. And she was sitting in the sitting room. There was my granny, um, my mum, Jennifer, Ted, Katie was in a bouncer. Um, that's one of the first images I can remember. And then because my grandparents lived in Kerry, my mum's parents, um, I probably loved the Kerry football team. And I can remember that team of the 80s, Pat Spillane, Jack O'Shea, Mikey Shee, um, Bomber Liston. I can remember all those players. They're my earliest memories of sport. So who were your childhood heroes then? Uh, my childhood heroes on a riding front were Charlie Swan and Richard O'Muddy. Um As jockeys, they were they were my heroes. Charlie tactically, Richard O'Muddy to watch physically. He was an, an unbelievable jockey. Um, but I was into every other sport, and I remember going to Lansdowne Road. It was at the time in '89 to watch Australia play the All Blacks in the semi-final of the World Cup, and Nick Farr Jones, Michael Lina, David Campesi. Um, but I can remember them turning up. A couple of nights before, I was playing rugby in Nace, and uh, Phil Lawler was playing for Ireland at the time, was from Nace, member of Nace Rugby Club, and Phil bringing Nick Farr-Jones and Michael Lina to Nace Rugby Club on the Wednesday night, and Nick Farr-Jones and Michael Lina 
showing us under 12s <laughs> what to do with a rugby ball. Um, so it was 89 or 91, whatever it was around then anyway. But I can remember that. And I, mean, I played scrum half for an ace. So Nick Farr Jones, I just thought he was class. So played scrum half. What, what kind of a, a scrum half were you if you're to liken yourself now to somebody from the modern game? Oh, no one in the modern game. <laughs> um, what was I like? I was an average passer of the ball, which is probably not a great, great start for a scrum half. Uh, but I was fit, wiry, tough. Um, and I guess I was more like a small, an extra small back row forward <laughs> than I was a, a scrum half, I think. So you obviously played rugby and horses were all around you all your life. Were there other sports that you played that you enjoyed? Whenever school bus was leaving the school, Marie, uh, for whatever sport it was, I was on it. If it was athletics, um, I, it was called Ruby, so I probably couldn't have blagged my way onto the Camogie bus. Um, <laughs> hurling, which I was no good at, I was from Kildare. Like, I mean, who in Kildare could play hurling? Um, hurling, football, soccer, athletics, any, anything that bus left the school, I was on it. I played everything. Um, we won a school's medal, actually, in Dublin, uh, playing for Raccoon. In O'Toole Park, we beat Sing Street when I was in sixth year. Um, whatever division we were in, I couldn't tell you. But um, I can remember winning that. That was about, and I also won a South West West Tipperary medal in under sixteen football. I was working for Aidan O'Brien. I played for Rose Green. Um, a under a, a banger, yeah. Jamie Bork was my name. Uh, <laughs> Playing under sixteen football, I don't even know who we beat. Tip Town, we beat somebody in Tip Town, and yeah. Um, but yeah, I played everything. I just love sport. So, what did you want to be then when you grew up? When you were young, was it always a jockey? I always wanted to be a jockey. Um, there was no. It was before professional rugby. Professional rugby only went professional basically as I came to the end of my rugby playing days. I wasn't good enough anyway. But the thoughts of being a, a professional sports person and being a jockey was the only option for someone like me. I wasn't good enough at soccer uh, GA from Kildare maybe win a Leinster title was it really going to go at the football to probably win a Leinster title the chance of winning an All-Ireland were fairly slim so uh, I always well, back in those days they would have been packed out Crow Park for Leinster finals so they would have been fairly glamorous and exciting oh they were don't get me wrong I can remember when Kildare did win the Leinster final in 95 um Glenn Ryan, Anthony Rainbow, William McCreary, uh, the bus stopping in Johnstown, which was just literally killed, was the first village in over the border, and the bus stopping at the John Devoy in, in Johnstown, and the place just thronged with people, and they were brilliant days. Uh, you know, Dermot Early, I remember going to the All Ireland final, and Dermot Early playing 10 left wing forward, scoring a goal um, against Galway in the first half, thinking we're going to win the All Ireland, but that didn't work out. Um, but they were they were great days, Mick O'Dwyer was in charge. No, racing was always going to be a jockey for me, always. So at what stage did you realise, OK, I have a bit of talent at this? I don't think I ever realised that I had talent. Uh, I loved what I was doing. I wanted to do it. I wasn't afraid of working. And I got opportunities and I started riding winners. But I don't think I ever got into a car or sat down at the kitchen table or got into bed and thought, wow, I'm talented. That, that thought never crossed my mind, not even to the day I retired. I, I, that wasn't my outlook or my mindset. My mindset and my outlook was, I wrote a winner today, where's the next one coming from? Can I write another winner? Can I, you know, I started and I want, you start with a seven pound claim to give you uh, 
try and level the playing field, I suppose. The guys with all the winners rating have no allowance and those that are starting out have an allowance. So I guess I wanted to lose my claim. And that's what I started with that goal. And I rode eight winners the first year I was riding. The second year as an amateur, I became champion amateur. I was in school doing my leaving cert. And then I left school and was champion amateur for a second time. Then it was just crossroads. Do you turn professional? Do you stay amateur? My dad had been champion amateur 11 times. And he thought I should. And William Mullins thought I should. So I turned professional and never looked back. But I think I just started following a dream. Where was the next winner coming from? Could I ride a winner at Cheltenham? Could I Could I end up champion jockey? It was never, yeah, I'm good enough for this. It's only that attitude washes in racing. And I'm not sure when you really think about it, is it an attitude that washes in sport? You must have always been good though, Ruby. You must have always been good at it. Yeah, I enjoyed it, Marie. And um, was I good at it? I don't know. I... Uh, Look, I was always told self-praise is no praise. So was I good at it? Let somebody else judge me. Yeah, but somebody had to keep giving you the rides and encouraging you. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was lucky. I, was, I started working for Willie and I got a ride for him when I was 16 one day in Leperstown. It was a November Sunday afternoon and he turned up in Leperstown to ride a filly in the bumper himself called Young Fenora and he couldn't do the weight. So my dad had a runner in the first race and he said to dad, is Ruby around? Would he ride to Philly in the last? I was at home in Kill. It's only 40 minutes from Leperstown. So I uh, jumped in the car. Didn't have a license to drive. So Jennifer actually did. So she drove me to Leperstown. And I rode to Mary in the bumper for Willie and she won. And that was, I guess everybody gets a day in their life as a sports person where you think that was the day that set me on the road. And that was the day for me. And what about things that you had to work on? Was there anything specific that you, as you were developing, as you were following your dream and, and chasing your career, that you really had to work on hard to to progress, to get better? Always. But as with a jockey, it's, it's a bit like a footballer. Can you be a, a one-footed footballer? <laughs> you can, but are you, are you considered great? No. And it's the same with riding horses. You can't be a one-handed jockey. I'm right-handed, so but I had to make my left hand, the use of the whip and how to use it had to be the equivalent in my left as it was in my right. So that's always what you worked on. And I worked on that from the time I was a kid, always. Everything was done with my left hand. It was never done with my right, was natural. So it was always done with my left. And that was a huge help that you, I had no weakness left or right. And then just technique and style. And that comes with fitness and coaching and someone telling you, look, you're bend your knee more, turn your, bend your knee more, get your shoulder in line with your knee, your knee should be in line with your toe, um, you know, getting the angles right. That's aesthetic though, that's just so you look neat. Um, and being what was considered big for a jockey at the time, 5'9", I always had to work hard to look as tidy as the, as the smaller people. So uh, there are the things I had to work on, but definitely left, right, you can't be a jockey if you can't. Well, you can, but you won't succeed if you can't use both hands to equal ability are you the type of person that looks back at races looks back at um videos of yourself and, and try tries to improve on it oh yeah but like and that's the advantage um now with the internet that jockeys have they can get into the car at the races and just put on the replays on their phones and watch them on the way home uh when i started riding you had to go to the 
Bart Arnold or Doherty's wagon and get a recording of the race on a video cassette <laughs> and bring it home with you and then put it into your VCR and watch it. Um, but yeah, I did. Not just winners, every rate. And then racing channels came along and you could record them off the racing channel onto a video and then obviously came Sky and Sky Plus and Sky whatever else and you can just record whatever you want now. But um, yeah, you had to watch it all and watch back, watch your own and not just losers winners as well because you get away with giving bad horses a ride when they win nobody notices because you won but just because you won doesn't necessarily mean that you did it right are you somebody now that you have retired do you ever sit down and watch the big days back I probably did when I initially retired I haven't in a while um, I actually see my kids watching them now um, you know, I saw when Cheltenham came up and the girls were looking at the different races and you see them Googling on YouTube and next thing it up it comes and they're telling me, Dad, you, you, you know, you, you won that race. And I'm saying, yeah, I know, I won that race. Um, but they're watching nice. them. Yeah, it is actually. Um, but Isabel would remember and Elsa would remember the latter part of my career. They don't remember the early days. They weren't born and even when, it, when, when they were young, but like Gemma and Erica, means very little to either of them but um, yeah, Isabel and Elsa I suppose the latter part of my career they were there and they were there for the swan song really They're, you know Gillian brought them to Gorn to watch Invitation Only Women in the Tiestes and then she turned up at they came to entry to watch uh, Ratvin in the National he didn't win she turned up she was at an event with them in, in uh, Bray outside Bray and she rushed back to Ferry House to watch Borough Saint win in the Irish National with Isabel and Elsa, and you can see them actually in the parade ring when the horses coming back in, and the two of them running across the parade ring, waving up. And then they were obviously a punch down the day Kemp by retired, but um, they were there for they remember that. And look, we always we have horses here, they're lucky enough to have ponies, um, and they love it. Are you happy enough for them if they want to, to follow in your footsteps? I wouldn't discourage them in any way, whatever they want to do, be it if they want to be jockeys or. I'm not sure what help I'm going to be in anything else. If it's academic, uh, their mother is definitely going to be coming to the fore. But um, no, I, I think you, all you can do is, is stand behind someone and support anybody in whatever path they choose to take. So providing, it's, providing it's a legitimate path. <laughs> yeah, true, actually. <laughs> Obviously, you reached the, the top of your career. Was there any moment where you thought, okay, I can, I can get there, I can be the best, I can be the one that is going to set the standard, raise the, the standard and um, just be the person who is at the top of the game? I don't think there was, Marie, because I, I was lucky in a sense to ride in what was or what's considered to be a very good generation of jockeys. You had AP McCoy and Richard Johnson in the UK and you had Paul Carberry, myself, Barry Geraghty and latterly Davy Russell in Ireland. And then there was a huge periphery of jockeys around that snapping at all of our heels so I don't think any one of us ever had the luxury of thinking I'm setting the standard here I'm at the top of this pile there was that many good riders around that it was just always a constant battle it was always a constant who's pushing who um, you know you're all you spent most of our careers looking over our shoulders at the other one and I think that was great uh, out of all of them, who would you have say? Who would you say drove you on the most? AP was setting the standard, and he was setting the records. He was, 
is Sir Anthony McCoy, and he didn't get a knighthood for his personality. Um, you know, he's he what he achieved as a rider, his his drive, he set standards. There's no doubt about it, um, and he pushed barriers that the rest of us therefore thought we had to, uh, with injury, with pain, with commitment, uh, with homework, with professionalism. He pushed, he pushed it, and we had to try and catch on to the back of it or try and keep up with him and I think we were lucky to have someone like him sort of five years older than us myself Barry Davey we were lucky to have someone like him just in front of us that we were all the time chasing It's rare enough in sports that you have great rivals that you'd be pals with as well you know like often it's teams and you're you're like you don't ever see each other unless you're going out on the pitch but like you've lived with AP for a while I did when I was in the UK, yeah. I did live with him. And when you were in Ireland, you would have shared lifts racing with, with all of the others. Um, not not so much, well, Barry for me, not so much Dave. He obviously lives in Cork, so we'd very rarely be going on the same the same direction anywhere. But um, he would share, would have shared higher cars and flights. And if you're going, you're, you're not <laughs> helicopters, yeah, by, by wish. Um, but you would never, you would have often be going to the same places um, as self-employed people. I, I think more like golfers, Marie, jockeys are. Mm-hmm. You look at golfers, you see Shane Lowry travelling with Lee Westwood and Tara Carrington, even though he's much younger than him, because they're all going the same place. Like They're competitors, They're not, they, but they are still good friends. And I think jockeys are the same way. When the race is on, you're a competitor. But when the race is off, you don't have any teammates. You're not going to train them with a squad of people. You, you're you're on your own. So I think that's where maybe individual sports people get along better. And you, you probably see it in athletics, Marie. Um, you hear them at training camps together, and you know any Irish athlete could be at a training camp with the foreign athletes they're going to race against, and they get on well against them, and then they turn up on the track and they're the fiercest arrivals. I think that's just something to do with with, with being individual sports people. Yeah. So Ruby, every person that I've spoken to has had um, setbacks that they've had to overcome in different ways, whether it be injury or being dropped for a, from a team. For you, what was your biggest setback? Injury was my biggest setback and always were. Um, I think when I was nine, 20, 20, I had uh, been champion. I turned professional. I was champion jockey the first year. I was a professional. Charlie Swan stopped riding over fences. And I ended up being champion jockey. I rode 94 winners. And I was having a really good summer. And I went to Czech Republic to ride in the part of Bicha. And I broke my leg. And I missed, that was in October. So I missed November, December. Just about getting back in January. I got a fall schooling. And I suppose I did break it again, but not the same extent. The fracture that was healing reopened slightly on one side. And I only got barely got back for Cheltenham. And I didn't get on many horses in Cheltenham. Out of sight, out of mind. And Papillon came along on the first Saturday in April and won the Grand National. And my whole career turned around. But setbacks were always, or injuries were always the biggest setbacks. And as I got older, I learned that it was nothing to do with the physical pain of an injury. Break your leg or dislocate your hip or smash whatever. Physical pain goes away and goes away quite quickly. You paramedics, doctors, painkillers, hospital, drugs, come out of whatever surgery and all of a sudden you're there. But to go home 
and sit down on the couch and then watch the sport that keeps going without you and watch the horses that run without you and win without you. I think that's the hardest part. It must be for, for all sports people. Even like you, you do a crusade, you've gone out of the team, the team still plays, the team still wins, somebody replaces you and you're wondering the whole time, will I get back on those horses? Will people still want me when I come back? And that doubt is there all the way through every injury you have. And no matter what people tell you, will you, don't worry, we'll, we'll put you back on the horse. Don't worry, you will use you again. It doesn't seem to resonate until you're back on the horse. You don't ever believe it. So how did you deal with injuries? You had your fair few of them. Um, I'd say Gillian was a huge help. Um, in my younger years, youth, I suppose, and as I got older, Gillian uh, and Enda King and Sanchi. And just the physical rehabilitation and the effort that took. And it gave gave you a purpose I think that's a huge thing for jockeys when you're injured racing keeps going you can't go and ride out you're not going to the races and you're home what are you doing we're not very few jockeys are like rugby players that are studying uh, doing courses doing university degrees very few of them have anything else outside of racing and when they're injured it's just uh, nothing they're no purpose so I think as I got older with Gillian, be married to Gillian, having kids didn't matter to them whether you were on crutches or you were walking. They still needed to be put in the high chair, taken out of the high chair. You know what I mean? Kids need, kids have to be minded. And I think that was a huge thing. And I definitely think as I got older and was fortunate enough that Ronald O'Gara put me in touch with Aina Falby for an x-ray on the QT one time. And Aina put me in touch with Enda King. And I think physically for my career, that was a huge turning point. So you were like clearly able to deal with the setbacks of injury and you were able to get back uh, physically and mentally. But how did you deal with the criticism that came at you as well, Ruby, for different things, whether it was falling off a fancied horse on a big day, which happened once or twice? Um, how did you deal with that? Because it must be hard, like just the public... Um, perception that might not have always been positive. Yeah, I, I just never thought being a sports person was a popularity contest. Um, I always thought being a jockey was a results-based contest. So what people's opinion of me didn't overly bother me or worry me. Um, everybody wants to be popular, but I soon realised that the real popular guys in the wearing are the ones that aren't riding the winners. Um you know what I mean? So I knew from a young age that if you've been successful, you're not always going to be popular. And people are going to, people just love to want to take you down a peg or two. But I guess with criticism, I was always of the opinion, keep throwing it because somewhere along the way, I will prove you're wrong. No matter what I have to do, I will prove you're wrong. <laughs> um, that sounds like it could be all consuming, Ruby. Maybe, but um, I was never one for retaliation, Marie, but I always got even. And I just always looked ahead. The past, past can never be changed. We can only affect the future. And that's the way I looked at it. You look To me, horses fell, horses got beat. You looked at it, you analysed it, you saw what was wrong, done. 
can't be what if, if only if I, if only I, but you'd not if anything. You couldn't do anything about it. It was done. You could only be what you can affect going the other direction in the future. And that's just the way I looked at it. And I guess I was lucky that I was sort of ahead of social media just before it. I know it came in in the latter end of my career, but um, I didn't really ever buy into it. And social media has become such a global phenomenon and there's no doubt that it's here to stay and it's whatever it is. But I think people would eventually see that there are certain platforms of social media that they might be better off without. Yeah, I think people are starting to realise that. I'll give you a good quote, actually. Sherlock Nam was one of the very first people I ever interviewed in my career. And he said to me, he said, forgive, but never forget. <laughs> and that has stayed with me ever since. I like so, Charles' way, I think. Yeah, exactly. So who do you think, when you look back over your career, had the biggest impact on your career? My dad. No doubt. My dad shaped my career. I advised my career. Um, I'd say I talk to my dad. Still talk to my dad three times a day. Um, the conversations now are probably waffle but when I was riding um, I spoke to him every day before I went racing I spoke to him as soon as I was finished racing um, I'd say my doesn't I don't say I know my dad has my dad was my coach I had a free coach who was my dad who was 11 times champion amateur who was infatuated by racing infatuated by jockeys um, and I had if you're watching the golf and you're watching Sky and you're listening to um used to be Tiger's coach. Oh, can't think of the man's name. That brilliant golfing coach. Well, I had the equivalent in race. I had the best coach. Was he hard on you? Yeah. Yeah, of course he was. But there was no point. There was no, there was no other way. Someone that's telling you you're great. What are you learning then? Everyone thinks they're great. They don't need to be told they're great. Everybody needs to be told what they're doing wrong and how they need to do it right. Um, and that's that's what he was. He was. You just no hard's the wrong word. What you sh I should have asked was, was he honest with you? And yeah, he was honest. And a lot of people don't like honesty because honesty hurts. Did it ever fracture your relationship in any way? If he told you something you didn't want to hear? No, because it wasn't personal. He wasn't telling me that I gave a horse a bad ride because he wanted to hurt my feelings. He gave me tell was telling me I gave a horse a bad ride. Because he knew I wanted to be better. It wasn't this wasn't a, a cat fight. Um who's you know, who's right, who's wrong. It was honesty. And that's why we got on so well. So when you were growing up and you pictured yourself as a jockey, as really successful jockey, when you're looking back on your career now, do you is there like one ride that just defines everything that you wanted to be as a jockey? No, there's not ever one ride that defines what I wanted to be as a jockey. There are certain days that I look back upon with great pride. Um, and there were always days that I kind of proved people wrong. Most of them. I was lucky enough one year to get back for Cheltenham with a broken leg. And I got back riding just before Cheltenham. And I rode in the Thurless the week before. I had one ride. And went to Cheltenham and Paul and Willie both put me back on all their horses. Paul Nichols and Willie Mullins. And I won the first on Alfa off. I got back on Hurricane Fly in the champion hurdle and I won in Quivega. But Alfa never looked like winning. Hurricane Fly only just won. 
and then Quay Vega won. But I remember turning after crossing the line on Quay Vega after riding the treble thinking, there you are, every one of you that doubted me. <laughs> Just small, small things like that thinking, oh, everyone that had an opinion that had said there's no way Paul Nichols should let him ride Alfaroff or Willie Mullins should put him back on Hurricane Fly. They stood behind me. They were the men in charge and I repaid them. That was satisfying. And I think the year in Cheltenham where they all, where the horses got beat on Tuesday and, and Wednesday and Willie's horses were sick. Ruby Walsh couldn't ride. And then on the Thursday, I rode a four-timer and the first one was York Hill and then on the Soul and Nicholas Canyon and Let's Dance. And I remember thinking, like... Bring it on. <laughs> I don't know. And what am I, childish? Do you think that mentality, though, Ruby, is what kind of sets you apart, like, and is what maybe fuels that success? Yeah, possibly, Marie. Um, poss- quite possibly. I just, I don't know, I loved the art of race riding. I, I loved the tactics. I loved the the, the toughness of it. Um, I can remember... Look, I can remember winning the champion hurdle and hurricane fly with God knows how many broken ribs and no one ever known. Um I can remember going there when I didn't get to meet Anna Falvey with a broken fibia and riding seven winners in Cheltenham. And no one that I knew that and never t- saying it to anybody or telling anybody and hobbling into Cheltenham. And even the last year I was there, uh, I was riding a bike because I had a broken, I don't know, what I had broken. <laughs> Well, if you something don't know, you don't know. Something to be fought. Um, but, you know, just, I don't know. I, I enjoy the toughness of it. Yeah. You've definitely got an edge anyway. So what do you think has been your greatest success in your career? Papillon. Papillon is the one, if you said to me, you can do that again. Uh, I'd say that was a huge catalyst for my career. I was 20. He won the Grand National. He was, I didn't mind the plunge on him. That had very little to do with with it, with it, with the enjoyment for for me or for dad or for um, any of our family, but Papia, if you said to me you can have one more go at one day that you think was hugely important, that's the day I would go out every all day, every day. It was, it was incredible. What was the hardest day then? Hardest day didn't even involve me riding a horse, Marie. I think the hardest day was leaving Cheltenham the night that. John Thomas had left Cheltenham Racecourse in a helicopter, John Thomas McNamara. And no one, when that red helicopter came from it, no one by the, by the vagueness of the doctors, by the speed they were moving, knowing that he was seriously, seriously hurt. That was the worst day. Knowing how dangerous it can be, Ruby, did it ever put you off? Did it ever, did you ever think, maybe this is just too risky? No, it didn't. And maybe that's blinkered. I don't know. Childish. Definitely not childish. Um, cold. You looked at the you looked at the, the fractions, Marie, or the the results, and it's one jockey every whenever. So when Kieran Kelly got killed in Kilbegan. I remember walking across the car park and the late Desi Hughes saying to me and we were shook at the time Kieran was the same age as us and he got a fall in Kilbegan and been taken away 
to Tullamore and then moved to Dublin and died two days later. And Desi Hughes saying, look, there's one in every jockey's lifetime. And it was Kieran Kelly that got killed. And unfortunately for John Thomas, he was the he was quadriplegic. And did you kind of think it won't be me? I think it maybe probably did. Yeah, that probably is a, a cold way of looking at it. But I know that you do have that kind of a statistics brain anyway and have an ability to nearly remove yourself. I think, I think that's what you did. You kind of tried to remove yourself from it and, and um, look at it coldly. Cold is the only way of putting it. So Ruby, when you think of the future... And when you're sitting in that office chair in years to come, what do you think your legacy will be? I don't know. I, mean, I was looking at that question earlier, Marie. What is someone's legacy? What is legacy? I never Googled it. What the actual <laughs> meaning of legacy is. What do you think people will think of you when, they, when they're when they going, oh, oh grumpy. grumpy. <laughs> do you want me to answer that? <laughs> grumpy. Um, Actually, just on that, what, what do you think people think of you? I don't know. I don't know. What do people think of me? Cold, grumpy. Um, it's not bossy. that people have a perception of you that isn't actual reality. No, but look, we all have perceptions of people that we don't know. So um, once the people that know me like me, I don't mind. Um, <laughs> we all have perceptions of people that we don't know. And that could be very true, it could be very wrong. Um, but what might my legacy be? <laughs> I don't know. That maybe makes me feel like I'm going to die or something. Do I have to have a legacy? Well, you're retired now, so your career is behind you. I couldn't but I'm not. say I've your best changed, days behind changed, you. I've, I, I've changed career, Marie. I'm not, I'm not retired. I'm 42, 41, nearly 42. Um, 15th of May? 14th, yeah. Um, so I've changed career. What my legacy be? I don't know. I never set out to have a legacy. I set out to chase a dream and I enjoyed every minute of it as a jockey but as I said I was I'm 42 and I had a earned a really good living as a jockey but I didn't earn enough to sit on my couch for the rest of my life so I have changed career that brings me along nicely then to what is next Ruby as you said you've changed career what's I know what you do Mondays and Tuesdays and a lot of the weekend on the radio or on the television so what what's next for you because I know that you can't be one for resting on your laurels and will always be thinking about the next step yeah, and I was lucky, Marie, in the contracts and contacts I had when I was riding um, with Paddy Power as a brand ambassador, with Racing TV as a pundit. Um, and I'm lucky to have picked up gigs then with RT and the radio with you and with ITV. And I always wrote for the Irish Examiner. Um, I enjoy that. I enjoy the writing because you can edit it and change it and <laughs> add a bit in and take a bit out. And it's once a week and you have all week to get it right. So... That's probably the, the most enjoyable part. I must say I love sport and have enjoyed doing game on. Um, I found it incredibly hard at times uh, when there's not a whole pile happening and you're trying to make content because am I a real conversationist? Probably not. And I have to work hard at that to make myself talk. Um, and I enjoy talking about racing, but I do love other sport. I love sport. And yeah, I think, the future for me is hopefully in the path I'm going um, but I know as a pundit you only have a certain shelf life so I'll have to get better at the presenting part Right well 
You definitely have passion for it anyway, Ruby, and passion for all sports. So passion I just, is passion is no good, Marie. Passion only gets you so helps. far. Definitely helps. Well, you have the work ethic too, so and you're on the right track. So we'll see what happens. And I'm looking forward to hopefully being part of some of it anyway with game on. We'll see with, a bit, with, a, with a bit of luck. <laughs> so thanks, Ruby. And thanks for all the great days as well, because I think when we look back on the sporting events over the last couple of decades and big moments, you were um, responsible for giving us a lot of good times. And thank you to everybody for listening as well and watching. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. And if you did, please like, subscribe and leave a review.